Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everybody and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty program at Victorian Labour College. In the studio is myself, Chris Gaffney, and Irene Bolger is going to sit in and Doing keep him company. Shift, yes, and keep him on his toes, yeah, I hope. That's right, she's not been asked, but hasn't had a chance to prepare anything. She only <laughs> knew that she was coming on 20 minutes ago, so thanks, Irene. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> well, I thought I should, uh, there's so many issues I want to get through, I'm probably going to overdo it, but uh, in Israel there's been uh, various assassinations by mainly been reported by Palestinians killing the odd Israeli. But uh, the other day, an armed Jewish mod lynched an unarmed Etrian migrant worker in Beersheba after an Israeli security guard repeatedly shot him. Well, what they did, they didn't actually lynch him. Did you see what they did to him? Uh, well, I'm not quite... No, well, well, he was on the ground and then they were kicking him in the head and laughing at him and, uh, yes, and kicking right. him and he was rolling around in all the blood on the floor. That's right. Yes. Well, uh, this murder underscores the noxious atmosphere of xenophobia and racism mm. that Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, stoked up <laughs> in order, we might add, to deflect rising social discontent amongst Jewish Israelis. Yes. We don't hear much about that whose living conditions are in many cases only slightly better than those of the Palestinians. At the last elections, Netanyahu urged Jewish Australians to vote, saying that, quote, swarms of Arabs were going to the polling station. Ultra-nationalist Jewish politicians have encouraged the mobilisation of vigilante groups and fascistic mobs that go on the rampage while the police stand and watch. Mm. Settler gangs that murder Palestinians and attack and destroy their property go unpunished. As Zebron uh, Zerham, the, the man who killed, was at, under attack from the mob, a bystander found his visa and held it up shouting, he's a train, he's not a terrorist. Yeah, he was uh, Too late. Israeli. That's right, he mm. was an Israeli, that's yeah. an Israeli citizen. Mm. Uh, anyway, he died. Yes. Uh, now, he was a Bedouin, he was an Israeli Bedouin, and the Bedouins have really been in... in involved in attacks on Israeli. In fact, some even serve in the Israeli army. But discontent's been growing since the government announced plans to evict nearly 40,000 Bedouins from their homes in the desert. Mm, yes. Without recourse to the courts to appeal their evictions, they can't appeal it, the Bedouins face the destruction of their pastoral way of life and a future of poverty and unemployment. As it is, they rank amongst the poorest people in Israel. This displacement of the Bedouins is part of a broader process of dispossessing Palestinians within Israel. The policy is to wait, make way for Israeli settlements in the West Bank and reverse the, the, the population spill in East Jerusalem in favour of Jews. Yes. Some 195,000 Jewish Israelis, mainly Orthodox Jews, now live in East Jerusalem. Jerusalem's 300,000 Palestinians have for decades suffered under a raft of discriminatory practices following Israel's illegal annexation of East Jerusalem in 67. Unlike the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, they are technically under civilian and not military law. But they're stateless. They're yes. neither citizens of Israel nor Palestine. Yes. They haven't got official passports and they can't travel freely. 
they're denied citizenship as a right. They can apply for citizenship only if they swear allegiance to Israel and renounce all citizenships, which most of them refuse to do. Even if they do agree, few accept it. Israel's planning and building policy has limited their residency rights and their ability to build. At least 10,000 new homes for Jewish Israelis have been built in the city since 2000 in ways that surround and isolate the Palestinian neighbourhoods, while at least 14,000 from East Jerusalem, Palestinians that is, have lost their city, city residency rights. More, most have lost their rights due to being absent of more than five years. So if you go overseas and study and you're away for more than five you lose your citizenship. And, and what they're also doing, and I don't know whether you've got this there, but that in the last few days they've been putting up barriers around in East Jerusalem mm, and around mm, those. And mm. So they're putting up new concrete barriers around and sort of hemming them in into little... That's right, little pockets. Little pockets. That's right. And, uh, and, and also that um, uh, a lot of this is... This time, as in, in the um, demonstrations by young uh, Palestinians too, has been because of the decrease in access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And what they're doing is taking Israelis and settlers through on a regular basis to walk through mm. there and, uh, and, and also chant all sorts of nasty chants. Yes, yes, death to the Arabs is a common uh, one. Yes, and, uh, and so that decreases the access by of course, of to course. their mosque. And so that has set off. And, of and mind you, they're using most of the time throwing stones, but there have been uh, the occasional... Well, they get live fire. I mean, it, yes, if you they throw do. a stone at the yes. Israeli armies, they yes. fire with real bullets. Well, I saw some footage of um, last night of... Uh, a young Palestinian just putting a flag up on the Gaza border. It was on the Palestinian mm. side of the Gaza mm. border, and he was shot. Right. He wasn't right. doing anything apart no, from putting, no. well, holding the flag up. That's right. <laughs> I mean, this is the, these are the conditions that provide the context for the current uprest amongst the Palestinians, which is triggered by fears that Israel intends to change the status of the Al-Asqua Mosque compound, yes. which is the third holiest site. Israel's Palestinian citizens, 20% of the population, earn 30% less than even the very poorest Israeli Jews. And they're the ones from the Middle East and North Africa, not the Europeans. Yes, yes. Their towns and villages and receive a much lower bu budget allocation than their Jewish counterparts, with the result that they are found at the bottom of every social indicator, infant mortality, poverty, crime and impunishments. Uh the Netanyahu, uh, the Netanyahu government has intensified repression of Israel's Palestinian citizens and suspended their democratic rights, subjected them to de facto military rule. They've put whole neighbourhoods of East Jerusalem on lockdown, making it impossible for thousands of Palestinians to get to their workplaces in West mm. Jerusalem. They've stuck a wall up between the East Jerusalem Palestinian neighbourhoods of Jebel Makaba and the Jewish neighbourhoods. They've sent in thousands of extra police and widened their stop and frisk powers to allow them to search anybody on the street. They've authorised the use of live fire against Palestinians in Israel, including children who throw stones, leading to the killing of dozens of Palestinian young people and children. And they're also locking them up. You see, and, and they're locking up very young children. They're, you can see them being taken away by about three soldiers or four soldiers with one young child being dragged off, and they, they're extrajudicial 
uh, processes because they just go and lock them up. Mm. They have got no recourse to any law or anything. No. Um, the government has not opposed a ban on Palestinians working in schools imposed by four Israeli cities, including Tel Aviv. They've used Arab-speaking members of the security forces, known as the Mistarvarum, to infiltrate protests, act as agents provocateurs, encourage demonstrators to throw stones and attack soldiers, and then pull out their guns and arrest protesters. They've carried out house demolitions against the families of alleged attacking, uh, attackers, which is a form of collective punishment banned under international law. So I do yeah. ask you understand that the assassination of various, no doubt, innocent Israeli individuals, Yes, this has been created by the uh, Israel government to get the Palestinians out. The two-state solution, as yes. I've said before, is dead. The Israelis have no commitment to it whatsoever. No. They want them out. They want to obliterate the Palestinians and... Uh, Preferably by the Palestinians leading and by gunfire. Well, they provoke as the provocations are enormous for Palestinians. Well, they're provoked constantly. Of course, in the way they're treated, the humiliations, the the everything that's being done to them is is provocation. But and it's certainly a parallel to the way the Jews were treated in Nazi Germany. I mean, oh, well, the, now you the, brought the, that up. The Zionists <laughs> don't like that comparison, but the comparison yeah. is there to be made. Well, there's an excellent. If anybody uh, knows about Norman Finkelstein, United States, oh, yes, yes. a Jewish man. Mm. Mo- have a look, um, and it may be on, um, what's it called, where you can get video? Um, what's that called? You know, we can go and look up video. <laughs> um, on YouTube. YouTube. He, but I, I've, had, I've got it on my Facebook page where he does this most amazing lecture because he lectures all the time in the United States mm-hmm. and he was confronted by a, a young uh, Jewish woman about... Um, uh, what uh, happened in the Holocaust, and he said about don't why are you bringing up the Holocaust? It's not an excuse for. And then he said his parents were killed in the Holocaust. Yes, yes. Uh, and you can't keep using it as an excuse for the way you're treating Palestinian people. No, and he did quite. the most amazing uh, lecture uh, on that. But yes. Netanyahu has gone so far now to say that the Grand Mufti uh, set off the Holocaust. Yes, I saw that. I mean, <laughs> this just shows what a perversion, what a perversion Zionism is. But if I can move quickly on to another Because I keep interrupting you. No, 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 no. It's, it's gold. It's gold, Irene, I promise you. But I want to look at the, very briefly, uh, it's trouble of having too many items to try and whiz through. Yes. This one is on the hospital bombing in Afghanistan. And you may have oh, heard yes. that uh, you may have heard that there was an Afghan hospital was bombed, that uh, 22 civilians were killed, including 12 hospital staff, including doctors and nurses, Medicine obviously. Medicine And 10 patients. Now... The new media revelations have confirmed that this U.S. airstrike against a doctor without borders, Medicine Sans Frontier Medical Center in Kunduz, Afghanistan, was premeditated and deliberate as a war crime. The bombings lasted nearly an hour and a half and, as I say, killed 22 people. American special operation analysts in Afghanistan had been gathering intelligence on the hospital days before it was destroyed. The official asserts that the analysis had, quote, assembled a dossier that included maps with the hospital circled, 
supposedly because they believed a Palestinian intelligence operative was coordinating Taliban activity from <laughs> yes. inside the hospital. Yes. So there's no question. It's not, this is not conspiracy theory stuff. This, the Americans admit, yes, we bombed the hospital. However... Uh, and we're sorry. That's what... However, doctors on Frontier <laughs> have repeatedly asserted that no gunmen, weapons or ammunition were housed in their facility. Further, none of the victims killed by the airstrikes has been publicly identified as Pakistani, no. which is what the American justification was, and says that none of its staff were in fact Pakistani. And the president of uh, the doctors said that these new tales confirm, quote, that the hospital was intentionally targeted, killing mm. at least 22 patients and staff, and this was a premeditated massacre. Well, if you saw it right from the start, too, that the story's changed because the Afghan, somebody from Afghanistan, I don't know, it was a prime minister or somebody, somebody spokesperson said that oh, they, somebody saw somebody shooting from the hospital. That was the first thing. And then that changed and it became other stories. Oh, about yes, there were, there were numerous, <laughs> li- numerous lies told. Yes. NBS, NBC News reported on Thursday, quote, Cockpit recordings revealed that the crew actually questioned whether the strike were legal amid the five separate strafing runs during the attack. The Daily Beast reported that the military withheld both the audio and video from inside the cockpit, even when a lawmaker directly requested to listen to it, so they didn't want the evidence to be heard. In official statings regarding the hospital bombing, the US military commanders, as you observed, changed their story repeatedly. For the first three days, the military failed to state that innocent civilians were killed. The Pentagon refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing and sought to place the blame on Afghan forces, going so far as to withhold the fact that the airstrikes were carried out by the US. Mm. (coughs) The following day, speaking before the Senate Armed Services Committee, Campbell, General Campbell that is, finally acknowledged US responsibility for the tactic, declaring... To be clear, the decision was a U.S. decision made within the U.S. chain of command, end of quote. Yes, and apparently, though, the people in the hospital and being very accustomed to working in the war zone had sent out their um, logistics to to make sure that oh, they no weren't going that, to be hit. There's no question the Americans knew, <laughs> knew that this was a hospital. what they were doing. When asked about any U.S. troops on the ground, Campbell said... We have a special operations unit mm. in close vicinity mm. that was talking to the aircraft that deliver those fires. The president of the Medical Association has challenged the blatantly fabricated US narrative, telling the Australian press that the staff reported a calm night, that there were no armed combatants, nor active fighting in or from the compound prior to the airstrikes. Afghans who worked at the hospital also told the Associated Press that no weapons were fired from inside the hospital compound. The deliberate targeting of a hospital is a war crime that follows from the predatory war that's now gone on for 14 years. And I'm surprised that they haven't said it was Syrian planes or something like that. Well, yes. <laughs> I've been waiting they, for that. They would if they could get away with it. They certainly would. Um, the other, <clears throat> move, Moving on very quickly, you might want to know that... Um, the New York Times has uh, renewed its propaganda, 
campaign against the Russians over the, oh, the downing yes. of the, the airline. Yes. And the New York Times, which is a scurrilous rag, yes. and they say, oh, this is a prestige paper. Have you actually seen the New York Times? There's nothing in it. There's not, all American papers. The, the main paper in California is, I've seen the Northcote leader's got more content. <laughs> the New York Times published an editorial titled Russia's Fictions on Malaysia Flight 17. Mm, mm. And they blamed, of course, Putin for shooting down the passenger jet over the eastern Ukraine last November. No evidence to back up the claim at all. The Times declared that Putin sees no, room to come, no reason to come clear for the shooting of the Boeing 777. Because <laughs> well, he didn't do it. Because he didn't do it. The DSP report concluded that the Malaysian jetliner was shot down by a Russian male missile. Well, we know that to be true. Which was made back apparently in the uh, days of the Soviet, Soviet Union. Union. So it's very ancient. To date, no from. concrete evidence has presented that confirms who was responsible. No. No one objectively and honestly has looked at the content of the report could possibly conclude that Russia was responsible for the attack. Assertions that the rocket was fired from Russia itself have mm. now been discredited. Despite these facts, the Times deceitfully represents the report as confirming the official narrative spun by Australian, uh, American government officials. The newspaper ruled out any alternatives. In fact, in fact, any of those put forward by the Russian officials were ignored. While condemning Putin, the Times proclaimed its concern that the Russian public does not accept that the Russian government is responsible. <laughs> well, that's now, very unreasonable, isn't it? The Times is the last media outlook that should accuse of others of peddling propaganda. This paper has played a central role in using misinformation to promote every criminal intervention and war raged by the US over the last 25 years, from the bombing of Kosovo and Bosnia to the Iraq war. Oh, we can go back to Vietnam if you like. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> Judith Miller, a Times journalist, has played a particularly nasty role in promoting lies about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Yes. That were the official justification for the invasion and destruction of that country by the American military. <coughs> the Times staff has worked tirelessly to obscure the fact that fascist groups such as Right Sector and Zvobodia were the spearhead of Kiev's military campaign against the Russian-backed separatists instead blaming all of the unrest in the Ukraine on Russian military aggression. Mm. In April 2014, the Times propaganda campaign was exposed after it published low-resolution photos that claimed that Russian special forces were fighting in the eastern Ukraine. It quickly came to light that the photos published by the Times had been downsampled from higher-resolution images and that the entire story was a fabrication. And the Times retracted the story. In May of this year, the pub paper published an article by its Moscow correspondent that consciously falsified the country's history in order to sanitise Ukraine nationalist and World War II mm. Nazi collaborator Stefan Bandera, yes. who was a collaborator with the Nazis and is now an official hero of the semi-fascist <coughs> Ukrainian government. He's now been elevated as a national hero. Thursday's editorial blaming Putin for the downing of the plane is only the latest in a long series of propaganda pieces produced by the Times. There's no lie that the New York Times will not tell in efforts to defend and promote 
US imperialism. Now, turning to Australia for a second, which you may not know, <coughs> last week a high-profile high New South Wales property developer evoked the US freedom of speech argument <laughs> yes, when he went We're to court to ask amendment. for his right to make whatever political donations to political parties <laughs> that he wanted. Well, the High Court, thankfully, wasn't having a bar of it. In a recent ruling by the High Court, Australia's highest court is at pains to stop plaintiffs from using this implied right to mount sweeping American-style freedom of speech arguments. Because in the United States, any individual can donate any amount. So the Koch brothers... Can donate well, that's why you've got a, a oligarchy in the United States, because well, it's only rich people who can become president. That's right, that's right. I mean, if you're not a millionaire, forget, forget, land, it. forget yes. election in the land of the free. <laughs> yes. uh, the, New South, uh, the New South Wales case involved property developer and former mayor of Newcastle, Jeff McCloy, an independent conservative and donor to the Liberal Party, he fell, fell, fell far of the ICAC over alleged breaches of New South laws stopping political donations by property developers. McCoy's case sought to challenge the New South Wales electoral law, which dictates that no one individual can donate more than 5500 to a state political party. In effect, McCoy was arguing that his ability to donate freely to political parties was part of his broader political freedoms. Was that... Freedom of speech? Did it come under that? Freedom of money, I think, Freedom is of money. what was being hinted at. <laughs> the High Court said the Constitution should contain the grand principle of an equal opportunity for an equal voice of all. The idea of one person, one vote. And it said that allowing people to donate unlimited amounts, particularly property, that was a violation of this. In other words, you've got to accommodate equality of opportunity to speak and you just can't allow the very wealthiest to control the game, which they do anyway. Yes. What is really exciting about this case is the egalitarian idea that Australia traditionally is now being read into the Constitution. Well, thank, thank goodness for, for judges doing well, that. Well, that's, that's right, and for the law. Um, and can I say it gives people like, and I'm just going to be self-serving here, but people Please. like me who is on a pension... Uh, the ability to run for the Senate and try and get into Parliament. Yes, yes, yes. tell us about it. I've got one, <laughs> one more item. But go, I've got, go for you, last no, item. No, 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 no. No, we've got plenty of time. No, this is public. <laughs> Irene is going to be standing for the Senate. I, I want to do some hard questioning here. Oh, yes. Uh, now, what's the name of the group that you're standing for? It's the Labor Coalition Party. And it's Labor spelled L-A-B-O-U-R. Which is the Australian spelling, not the American spelling. Not the spelling. American spelling. But uh, and now, is there, are these people who have naive beliefs in the reformability of the Labor Party? No. They're not? Nothing to do. No, 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 no. Nothing so to do the, with that. It's an, seen as a, an alternative for working people and for people who want somebody to stand up for workers, the unions, the rights of workers, but not just that, for refugees, for Aboriginal people. Right, right. Now, is it explicitly socialist? Uh, it it you could call it socialist. It hasn't no, got no, socialist I didn't in say the name. I that. I said, explicitly, it, well, it it is in its aims in terms of the rights of people. Does it call for nationalisation? No. Why not? No. Well, it's a good question. And and can Does I it call say for workers' control? 
Uh, in any shape or form? No, it doesn't. But can I say, let me just, excuse Go me. Go on. Let me answer now, if you don't mind. Uh, I've only recently joined and we're currently going through all the policies. Mm-hmm. They're all being revised and we're, we're in the middle of that. And we're doing it on Skype, actually, a lot of it. Because <laughs> right. it started off, it started in New South Wales and Queensland, the party. And it's now we're getting members in Victoria. Mm. And uh, and they did ask me if I would join, and it seemed to me that the aims, uh, and the aims are uh, in line with what I think about what should be happening. But can I say that um, I'm probably, I mean, I could be called a communist, I suppose, if I was going to really put forward my ideas about a bit too in love with the you... ALP to be a communist. Really? Me, mm, I, I fell out of love with the ALP yeah, a very long time you. ago. You certainly got reason to hate them. <laughs> I've got good reason to hate them, and and really, they're such a those. They've been so disappointing in where they've gone well, for the last thirty years. Uh, well, exactly, and well, and I won't go into what they did to our, our union in the uh, strike, but even before that, and I can recall being in the socialist left of the Labor Party in the late seventies when certain people started stacking the left with their. Uh, you know, with their own people. Well, Whitlam did and that in, uh, in prior to his coming to power in 1971. The Young Labour Association, of which I was the presidential candidate for the left. Oh, so he's making admissions now. Yeah, well, well, well so I left the Labour <laughs> Party in 1975, mind yes. you. Yes. Uh, but at the Labour Young Labour conference of that year, buses arrived from Geelong, full of people, filled with people we'd never seen before yes. and never saw again who came in and voted for the right wing and then withdrew. I mean, talk about a stacked conference by Robert Ray. Oh, yes, Mr Greg Robert Ray. Yes, So yes, these, wonderful these are the, the calibre of the, the scum that yes. we were operating in the... Uh... Well, I must say that I joined the Labor Party in the 70s with great hopes for getting, you know, being in it and, and achieving something, some sort of aims. For me, I was a little bit, I was pretty naive back then. I'd been off to Catholic boarding school. I knew nothing. Uh, I mean, I'd le- started to learn my politics and my uh, my attitudes through reading, really. Right, right. Uh, reading books and reading books like uh, Eldridge Cleaver. And well, you're the, on the right, right on side ice when things the, came, yes. And uh, so I... I'd, my politics had come from reading and and also my own life experience, and so I was just a I wasn't an academic uh, person in no, terms no, no, of no, 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 having no. read Marx and you know been off to uni and all that sort of stuff. I was just a gut feeling um, socialist, I suppose. Right, uh, but more inclined towards communism. I, I always believed that. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, that uh, there shouldn't be any private property that we all should have. Uh, well, be private part property of. is threat. Theft was a popular exactly, saying in the United Exactly, and I, I've had that belief. But I, I, there's no way that I know that that is going to become what happens in Australia. Not in my lifetime, no, anyway. No, not and so, for me, I, uh, I'm joining this party because for me. It it might it's an opportunity perhaps for me to get in, but also well, if then, it stands if it stands for the independent interest of the working class, yes, then it's worthy. And that's of what I'm interested if it, in. If it hesitates on that, no, it's not worth it doesn't, and that's Can the I only just... reason I'm in it. Right, fair. Well, we'll come back to this. <coughs> we'll come. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll. submit you. To... <laughs> Wait, I'll give it. I'll give a speech at some point. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we shall ruthlessly attack you. <laughs> 
The other thing that, that that's happened, which you might be curious in the two minutes we've got, is that Stephen Hawking, the renowned uh, scientist, has dropped a truth bomb about capitalism and the future of inequality. Yes. Hawking believes, this is Stephen Hawking, he says, that if machines end up replacing human labour yes. and producing all of our commodities, which we one, at one time thought would happen and so we'd be working a three-hour day. yes. And we can, but if we, he says, Hawking says, if we continue on the current neoliberal route, we are on the way to becoming a sort of dystopia of a top ownership class yes. with immeasurable wealth and a bottom ownerless class, that is the masses, living in absolute poverty. I'll just well. read you his quote. If machines produce everything we need, the outcome will depend on how things are distributed. Everyone can enjoy a life of luxurious leisure if this machine-produced wealth is shared. Yes. Or most people can end up miserably poor if the machine owners successfully lobby, lobby against wealth redistribution. So far, the trend seems to be towards the second opinion with technology driving ever-increasing oh, inequality. And it's obvious. And given we got the 40-hour week in 1948, yes. what percentage has the pro- productivity improved since then? I don't know, but it must be, what, four, five hundred... Five hundred percent. Yes, and yet we're working longer. Exactly, and we and our wages are going down. So but, that yeah. far from technology being our bane, it's being turned as an instrument of our oppression. Now the problem we don't we shouldn't resort like the nineteenth century. We would go around smashing machines. Don't smash the machines. Smash the owners. Well, that's the thing, and the thing is that the Labor Labor Party, unfortunately, through Keating and Hawke, uh, were the ones who've uh, actually progressed that concept in Australia by bringing in the accord, which has limited increases in wages for workers through the Well, unions. real wages declined uh, 15% Yes, because time. increases in productivity are the basis on which you've got to argue for, for a wage increase. And in other words, so the rate of exploitation remains the same, except the yeah. same workers are producing more. Well, how can you increase productivity in an unlimited way? There has to be a limit to how much productivity productivity there can be. And it's founded <laughs> on the lie, it's founded on the lie that your interests as a worker are reconcilable with those of the bosses. Exactly. They are, and they're not. Under any consensus. If it's good for him, it's bad for you. Yes. That's an iron law. There's yes. no, because one is based on the exploitation of the other. Exactly. All right, people. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.